the top 10 most important chapters in the Bible? What would they be? What would your choice be if you had to select the number one top most important chapter in the Bible? What would your preference be? Or the second one, or the third one, or the fourth, the top ten. Kind of difficult, isn't it? If you thought about it, though, I, I, especially those of you that know your Bible, I'm sure you would pick certain chapters. Well, I picked Ephesians 2. I picked Romans 8. We just finished Genesis 3. Come on, Denise, I know you're thinking, am I right or wrong here? What are the top ten? Well, any, anyway, we're going to turn to one that could definitely be in that category. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. And I'd like to read the verse before the chapter starts. That's the last verse of chapter 12. I need somebody out there to read it who has a New Living Translation. I want you to stand up and, and read that out nice and loud. Anybody have the New Living Translation who can stand up and read that verse nice and loud? There's got to be somebody besides Mark Fuller. You don't have yours with you. Nobody has a New Living Translation. There's no penalty involved here. That's all right. Anyway, it's 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 a, it's a useful, looser translation. Does anybody? Lydia, stand up nice and loud, sister. Oh, okay. You're cheating. We'll take it though. When to the last chapter 12, last verse of chapter 12. Let me show you the way of life that is best of all. And Paul is about to explain the life that is best of all. Or I want to take you higher. I want to bring you to the utmost, to the fullest, to the most important thing. Let's read what that is if the desire of the inspired apostle is to want to take us higher, greater, further, fuller. Let's read what it has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm reading... In the ESV, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Ask yourself the question, do I have love? Does this describe me? Do we have these qualities? Love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Or 7 and 8, rather. Love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and loveth God, and knoweth God. We are the children of love. And here are some of the adjectives descriptive of those that have love, the greatest of them all. 
Verse 6, or rude. It's not rude, not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, now let me stop there for a moment, because in the chapter before, we have the elaboration of the different functions of the the, the Trinity. God, the way in which He dispenses gifts, Jesus as He dispenses gifts, and primarily in 1 Corinthians 12, how and what the Holy Spirit dispenses to His people as gifts. Those gifts are mentioned. These are the following ones. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, which is sort of generic, but now he gets into special special gifts that we would call, have, have been called the gifts of the Spirit. Healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. That's First Corinthians chapter 12 tells us the gifts that the Lord gave to the church through the Holy Spirit. Where else are there the mentioning of gifts given to the church? Romans chapter 12, verse 6 to 8. Who is the giver of those gifts? God. That is God the Father. Not God the Spirit, but God the Father. And there's one other place where reference is made to the, to God to the Trinity, giving gifts to the church. And that is Ephesians chapter 4. He that descended is the same them, same one that ascended. That is Christ, who came into this earth, rose from the dead. When He went into heaven, He received gifts for man, that is for His people, and He gave gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the edifying of the body of Christ for the perfecting of the saints till we all come into the fullness of the unity of the Spirit of Christ. So the church composed of people that have been born again. If you're not born again, you're not in the church. If you're not born again, you're not heaven bound. If you're not born again, you're not right with God. You're alienated from the life of God. Biblical things, spiritual things don't carry meaning for you like it does when someone is born again. And what the church does enjoy are hearing, listening, and growing in their faith from those that teach them. So we have in Ephesians 5, Romans 8, I mean Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, the mentioning of the ways in which God has endowed His people with people... And then you might ask the question, well, am I one of the people that God has given as a gift to the church? You might not find yourself so easily in the enumeration of all these different gifts, but you have a gift. It tells us that everyone has received a gift from God. A gift for ministry, service of some kind. It may not be in the category of a teacher, or apostle, preacher, etc. But it, it could be a very mundane, servile kind of character of gift that you have. But you have a gift. 
It's because of God that you have the gift. And the expectation is that you use that gift for the edification of the body. Gifts aren't given for your own personal enjoyment, though you may get joy from ministering your gift, but it's primarily for the profit of others. One thing about becoming a believer, a genuine, true child of God, is that selfishness is now replaced with an unselfishness. A Christ-driven love now has penetrated you and motivates you and gives you the desire to live for Him, which means to live for others. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Our brother was talking about the the, uh, Springfield Rescue Mission and the way in which Christians are trying to serve these people with hope, number one, that they will hear the gospel, that they will repent and obey and become believers. And then the, the turnaround of their life could be remarkable and should be remarkable. And for every one of you that has had a conversion experience by faith in Jesus Christ, your life has turned around. Alicia was sharing her testimony with us. There's expectations now from that sister that Christ is in her. Our brother was talking about the power of God. It's not just the power in the preaching. It's the power of the receiving of the preaching of the Word that is really the dynamite of the Gospel. When the Gospel, it's like it's like a match that is set to a, a, a pile of dry hay. It's going to go up in seconds. When the gospel is received and delivered in power and received with, with desire, with a spirit of contrition and repentance, the new birth occurs and all, all of a sudden I become a new person. Like our sister said and others have said, all of a sudden I want to, I want to serve God. I want to read the Bible. I want to go to church. I want to live for Christ. Where does that come from? To God be the glory. It's what He has done in you that we thank God for. And that love that this chapter brings out is what Paul is saying is the ultimate. This is the true charismatic life of Christianity. When these fruits... And if we go to first Galatians 5.22 about the fruit of the Spirit, the first one of the fruit that's mentioned is love. And I do agree with maybe what the NIV, how it translates it. Right after the the punctuation there, after the word love, there's a colon. And every other gift after that falls under the heading or underneath the, the, the superseding gift of love. The fruit of Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So love is supreme. It reigns. Sometimes love is thought of as being kind of a mushy thing. There's not, there's not much real root in it. It's not very, very doctrinal. It's kind of just, you know, superficial. That's not the kind of love that the Bible talks about. Look at those explanations of what love is. It's patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't brag, isn't arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul says, I want to take you higher. 
higher. I want to get you to the, to the end zone. I want to get you there. I want you to cross the, uh, the, the finish line and get to the most important thing in the Christian life, the Christian walk. As much as gifts are given to the church for the benefit of the body, undergirding all of that has to be love. That's why this chapter, which is known as the love chapter, is sandwiched between chapter 12, which is where we have the stating of the gifts, and then chapter 14, which is the practicing of the gifts. So in between the two, it's the love. It's oil that really makes the machine work. So it's got to be upon that basis. That's important to add. Verse 8, love never ends, never ends. But these things that he says will. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, tongues and prophecies and knowledge were all mentioned in the previous chapter as gifts of the Spirit. The knowledge here wouldn't be could possibly be referencing a supernatural knowledge that's granted to the individual that exceeds the average kind of knowledge that we might graduate to. I think just like there's mentioning of gifts that are given, and one of the gifts that's mentioned, uh, for instance in Romans 12, is the gift of faith. Now we all have faith, right? You can't be saved without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. By grace are you saved through faith. But how can it be said that there's a gift of faith in the, in the categorization of enumeration of varieties of gifts? Because that's the faith, that's an extraordinary measure of faith that is giving to certain individuals. And you may have that gift of Faith, it's actually a gift. Like here, the gift mentioning, it was mentioned in chapter 12 of, of knowledge would be a special unction of knowledge gift that, that exceeds the normal average understanding that, that one can gain knowledge-wise. But prophecies, tongues will cease, knowledge will pass away, Verse 9, we know in part and we prophesy in part. That was even in Paul's day. And when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now the big debate on is on verse 9 in regards to the gifts of the Spirit, which I would like to talk a little bit about, what are known as the charismatic gifts. I would say God touched my life in 1971, and I started attending because I started attending. I know God was working in my life, and I started attending what I didn't know. I didn't know the difference between I knew Catholicism, I knew Orthodoxy, because I grew up as an Orthodox. I went to Catholic Holy Cross College where there were Catholics all over around me. Had to go to mass even before football games. Had to say the Hail Mary at half before the game and halftime and all that kind of thing. So I was familiar with that. But to go into a Protestant church was odd for me. And, and Protestant was anything that wasn't Orthodox or wasn't Catholic. So I go in there and people are raising their hand and they're saying hallelujah and amen. They're reading the Bible and they're talking about Jesus as if Jesus was in the room and as if Jesus was in their life. Like, like I know Jesus. I'm like, this is weird. And, and I was turned off kind of 
being the macho football guy and all that kind of stuff, I thought I thought it was hot stuff. And going into this, I'm like, wait a minute. This is not my environment. But, you know, God was behind the scenes. He was working. And I started saying to myself, because I started going back and I said, there's something going on here that's real. Something is real here. Whether it was a Pentecostal, Baptist, I don't care. But when Christ exalted and Jesus' name is being highly revered and people are talking about him in an intimate personal way it will catch your attention that's why we're we're distinct from christians nominal christians because oh they believe in jesus oh yeah okay we believe in jesus they think what's the difference the difference is that we know him whom to know is life eternal. We have an intimate, personal relationship so we can talk about Jesus like as we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That's intimacy that a genuine child of God who's born of the Spirit has, who exhibits and demonstrates in the way in which they relate to Jesus. Anyway, I'm going into this Pentecostal charismatic church. That's what they call themselves, charismatic. And there's a lot of hallelujah, praise the Lord, and so on. And I'm an emotional guy too, so I can get get into that stuff too a little bit, you know. I like to tap my foot, you know, and move around a bit. But So that wasn't so odd to me. But Jesus got my attention. The Holy Spirit was working in my life. I would even go to all-night prayer meetings. I was starting to read the Bible. And I was even ambitious enough to want to start a Bible study at Holy Cross College. And I got permission to do it, and I advertised it in the school newspaper. I sent out all informations and invitations that I could. I got a large group of people coming, and I don't know my right hand from my left hand, I'm telling you at this point. I really don't. I'm just starting to read the Bible, but I'm getting excited about Jesus, and I want to see other people get excited about Jesus too. But the group ended up, because most of them, if not all of them, were Catholic, and a Catholic charismatic movement started to filter into the the group, which I wanted it to be focused on the Bible, yes, and prayer, and that prayer evolved into charismatic manifestations where people were speaking in tongues, and that was odd to me, too. I didn't know what to make out of that, and I said, am I missing out on something here? And... uh and, and, I, and I won't go into the history of my my life among Pentecostals, but I, I went to the Assembly of God. I've spoken to the, in the Assemblies of God a couple of different times. I have many Pentecostal friends that I love dearly, and in some ways I'm envious of how excited they are about Christ. I love that spirit about many of them. And um, I, 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 I wanted to examine the Bible. Is tongues for today? It, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a clanging symbol. And uh, he talks about taking them higher. So obviously tongues isn't the ultimate. As a matter of fact, when you get the listing of the, the different gifts in chapter, the end of chapter 12, it starts with apostles and teachers and so on, miracles and whatnot. And tongues is the very last one mentioned in the listing of the gifts. The question then is, what is this glossolalia? That's what it's called, glossolalia. It means to be speaking in language or syllables 
etc., ecstatic words that are foreign to the native language of the person or of people that they might be among. Um, some have raised the question, is it, is, it, is it a language of angels or a language of men? Because Paul uses that. He says, whether I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, does, do angels have a, a dialect of their own, a language of their own? Yeah, maybe you could get that possibly out of that. Paul's point is simply this. It doesn't matter with what kind of rhetoric that I utter, the very highest of, 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 state, of sayings of wisdom, whether from men or from angels, what exceeds both or all would be love. That's the ultimate for striving for. And the Corinthians were missing out on that. And you have to understand stand that in the epistle. There's a number of things that Paul brings out about the carnal Corinthians. That there was divisions among them. Chapter 1, verse 10. There were false and many teachers that were deluding the, the Corinthians. That they were subject to them. There was immorality that was tolerated. Chapter 5. There was a lawsuit going on between believers. There was a, an abuse at the Lord's Supper chaos and confusion. And some even in chapter 15 denied that Jesus was risen from the dead. That's very problematic, isn't it? And yet it's to the church at Corinth that he says, you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. So as gifted as an individual or a church may be, carnality can still set in in the midst of them which is kind of ironic from our standpoint. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Tongues will cease. Have they ceased? It's a fact that we, it can be stated from all that we know historically that after the first century there was at least a waning of the gifts, the miraculous gifts. That's not my own opinion. Those are historical details that we have. And through the, through the history of the church, from the first century to the 21st century, the miraculous gifts were off and on at best. And, and let me say something too. We have said this before. Pat also mentioned it, like myself, that remember that the Bible is, is written not to us, but for us. I'm not a Corinthian. I don't live in Corinth. I wasn't there back in 53 AD. So I, I, I have to try to understand what the author is saying to people 2,000 years ago and gain from it things that have application for me today. There are things in the Bible that don't have... We don't wash one another's feet. We were talking about not kissing each other with a holy kiss as if that's some kind of a command that's endless. No, it was obviously a cultural warm way of greeting one another. And many things of that sort, the way they dressed, etc. Men wore beards. All men had beards for, for, for the most part. It was, it was wrong for a man to be unbearded. Uh, so things like that obviously are time-bound and they don't have endless application for us. So we have to understand, too, another important thing, that they didn't have what we have. We have a great advantage. We have the whole canon of Scripture. 
from Genesis to Revelation, from Matthew to Revelation. We have books of the Bible that Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthians didn't have them. They weren't available. They hadn't even come out yet. Corinth would, would, be, would have been maybe like the fifth, fifth or so, or within the fifth or seventh of the first publications of early Christian literature, biblical literature, that we call canonical literature. What does that mean? If something's canonized, it means that it's classified as sacred. It's holy. It's set apart from the rest of literature. This isn't an ordinary book. This is holy, holy, holy. This is God's holy word. Holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the literature that's been produced by people whom God has inspired to write words for our benefit. But we have to make that distinction between what was written at the time at, in, and place under circumstances that they lived in and how those verses were imperative for them to heed. They're, they are not necessarily applicable to us. And in this case, what would be the advantage of speaking in tongues? Well, chapter 14 says that the individual is edified by it. I don't deny that. This personal edification from speaking in tongues, if someone had the gift of tongues. But Paul is discouraging the use of it. This is what we're talking about now, the practicing of the gifts. He's discouraging the use of it because there were people that weren't being benefited by it. Paul, as a matter of fact, says smack in the middle, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that others might understand than 10,000 words in an unknown language. So his preference is that people hear intelligible things that can edify the body of Christ. And because of my... I have had many opportunities to be in many charismatic Pentecostal churches. And I try to sometimes go to varieties of denominations because of my I want to learn more about what they believe. And if they're children of God, I love meeting people of God anyway. And I will sift from it what I think is good, what, is, what isn't. But it, it, I try to accumulate that so that if down the road I meet somebody who's a Methodist or whatever, I can say something about my experience with a Methodist. I'm not saying that I always went to charismatic or Pentecostal churches for that reason, but in, in my experiences with them, I have never, and I don't know, and, and I put out, we, we had a class that I, that I was doing with our uh, Thursday morning group years ago. Uh, we were studying the subject of the charismatic gifts and of charismatic practices today. I put out a letter to all varieties of churches that I could think of, that I knew of, and I said, if you practice 1 Corinthians 14, would you please notify us? We would like to make a field trip to your church so that, you know, we're studying it academically. We would like to see the gifts in operation. I didn't get one, I didn't get one response back, which I wasn't really surprised. And I wasn't trying to tease them or anything like that. And I think I kind of proved the point that I don't know of a church on earth, and I don't know everything, I definitely don't, but if you do know, let me know. But if there's a church that practices 1 Corinthians 14, the way the Corinthians were exhorted to practice 1 Corinthians 14, I would like to see that. I would like to be there. I would like to see how they operate in accordance with that chapter. I strongly doubt that there are any out there. Well, anyway, and I'm not trying to be critical here from the standpoint that there are 
um, real legitimate believers, obviously, in all kinds of different varieties of churches, for sure. I myself am a non-cessationist, non-gullibleist. For myself, and I'm not speaking for others here or our elders or our church, I'm speaking for myself in my experience. And from what I read in the Bible, I see that the perfect that will come, because it says that these things are going to exist until the perfect that will come. The perfect is, is in reference to Jesus' return and when perfection is established. Because everything before that is all time-bound. It's all economical. It's all normal relativity. But when He comes, things are going to be altered radically and changed positively. So in the meantime, before Christ's coming, things are going to be less than the final glory and the final knowledge and the final truth that will be in full display in the, in the future and coming day. As a non-gullibleist, I say that because I have been around tongue speakers for many, many years, many, many times, and I've never seen really any profit come from it. That's my personal experience. And I know some good men, Author Sam Storms, for instance, I love that brother. I love his writings. He's a very avid, reformed, uh, Pentecostal brother. Uh, I, th- I think he has a much more, uh, it, somebody like Gordon Fee, who's an outstanding, he died recently, but an outstanding commentator. I got to know him a little bit in seminary. I highly appreciated him. His writings are outstanding. If you want to read a book on 1 Corinthians, that would be the book, I think, to read as a commentary. I, I'm not trouncing these people at all. But I want you to be mindful of glossolalia. Muslims have glossolalia. Do you know that Mormons have had glossolalia? It's stated that the Mormon tabernacle choir all spoke in tongues synonymously in one song time. That Brigham Young spoke in tongues. That there are circles that would be occultish that have glossolalia, which is a phenomenon. I can't explain that. I don't know, and I don't want in any way throw water on the heat, you know, on the fire that someone has for Christ. I wouldn't want to do that to anybody. But from a church ecclesiastical standpoint, we have the whole Word of God, the whole revelation of the Scriptures. Do I need somebody to tell me something extra-biblically? Or what is the advantage that a, someone in a foreign language, that's what it is, it's a language, and it's intelligible because it can be interpreted or translated by someone who has the gift of translating. When, when I can turn to the Word of God and I can get all the whole counsel of God is contained in the Scriptures. In, the, in my experiences, what I have heard when people have spoken in tongues and been interpreted, that it's always the same thing. And even the ones that speak, the syllables that are said almost sound the same. But I know they're doing it in an altered state of consciousness. They're not, they're beside themselves. It's almost unexplainable. But that's okay. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Um, I, I think I told you, this was probably some time ago, but uh, my daughter had invited 
my wife and I to go to like a, to a magic show of some kind. We weren't sure what we were going to, and we went to it. This was in Manhattan, and uh, at one point near the end, he was selecting people from the audience to come up, and I got selected. I don't know, I don't didn't have my hand raised up. He said, "But you, come on up here." I'm like, "Oh, okay." Hundreds of people in the audience. He hands me and and three others a clipboard with a pen. actually it was a pencil in in our hand and said I want you to write two pictures of something that's meaningful to you and I I can't draw anything maybe a stick figure at best don't ever ask me to draw anything I can maybe color your picture but I can't even draw I'm terrible so I said I have two challenges first I got to draw, which is horrible, and then second, I got to think of something that's meaningful to me, and I said, I don't really particularly want to stump him, but I'm going to tell the truth. So I made a picture of a cross. (laughs) Couldn't get any simpler, right? And then I tried to draw a picture of a Bible. I think I did a half-decent job for a lousy draw. And sure enough, to make a long story short, he's going through all of us, and he said, and, 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 he, and he said, keep it up to your chest, hide it. And he showed us there's no camera. He told me, he said, that you have dri- driven, uh, written a cross. And, and the way he was putting it, like, uh, you know, and, and, and some literature like uh, a, a Bible. I'm like, are you kidding me? How did this happen? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of unexplainable things. The Bible even talks about the occult and what, can, what goes on with necromancing, with mediums. There's a real spirit world out there, but God's people aren't to touch it. Now, I'm not trying to necessarily make make a, a similarity between tongue speaking and between that spirit world of the occult, but I'm just saying there are things that are unexplainable to me. I can't explain it. But we as a church, we are not a charismatic church, but we are should be charismatic because we have gifts, and that's the point I want to make, and that is what is the title of this sermon? Uh... We are non-charismatic charismatics because we have the agape, the gift of the agape of love. And we have other kinds of gifts that are more, how should I say, practical and that actually have concrete uh, results and, and, and are tangible, so to speak. So we do play down at least, and I know some of you brothers would be strong cessationists, I am a non-cessationist and I became that because of the influence of Martin Lloyd-Jones' writings it had on me. And I couldn't for myself, in my honest evaluation of Scripture, come to a conclusion that the Bible teaches that the, the, the gifts of the Spirit would be halted. And the gifts of the Spirit are more than just tongues or interpretation. There's miracles, there's healings, discerning of tongues. So healings, miracles, prophecy... Um, these things are more difficult to uh, assess from a standpoint of having ceased. Who wants to believe that healings have ceased? We don't believe that, do, do, but do we believe that the gift of healing has ceased? Again, or the gift of miracles. And again, another thing, think of some of the miracles, and I know, I know this is much later than normal, but I didn't get up here till like 1 o'clock almost, so... Excuse me. Um, um, take, for instance, in the book of Acts. The Bible says that Peter walked, and when his shadow went over people that were sick, when the shadow fell upon them, they were instantly healed. 
Paul, from his own pockets, sent out handkerchiefs, cloths from his own body that when they were received, the individuals were healed. Paul goes, to, uh, Peter goes to Tabitha's house and raises her from the dead. She is out. She's gone. She's dead. He raises her from the dead. Do you see them today? I've been to Benny Hinn Crusades. I've watched him in action. I stood right behind him. I watched very closely a lot of things. I, I could spend another hour and a half on this. You probably would be interested, but then you'd be mad at me. What do you do speak, preaching until 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Um, and maybe half of you would fall asleep. I don't know. But anyway, um, as you compare the miracles of the New Testament, and not just Jesus' miracles, but the miracles that succeeded Jesus, do you have any comparison today to them? I'd say not. I'd say not. And look, at there are, there are many shrines where people go to Catholic shrines and they go there with their crutches and they walk away without them because they go visit St. Anne's Shrine or whatever shrine there is. There's lots of them around the world. These are unexplainable. There is a spirit world out there. And sometimes it's difficult to discern. Is it of God? Or is it of the devil? Very possible. Jannies and Jamries were deceptive, weren't they, in doing the miracles that Moses did as counterfeits to look like they were miraculous or miracle workers themselves and had these supernatural powers? Let me conclude. Paul says in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What is he referring to? Could he be referring to these things that are temporary that are going to give way. They certainly will give way. They're not going to be forever. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, this is what abides. Faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest. The greatest of these is agape, is love. It exceeds them all. We don't want to ever play down gifts. We want to emphasize gifts in a way. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. No mention of the spirit gifts there. Same thing with Romans chapter 12. uh, Gifts of mercy and service and so on. Generosity, hospitality, etc. Those are not in any way connected with the miraculous, the supernatural. But it's only in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we find, uh, chapter 12, 13, 14, that we have the references to the spirit gifts that are the supernatural manifestations. And wouldn't it be nice if we did have them? I mean, that's one of the motives of, of, of Pentecostal preaching is that if they can show signs, signs and wonders uh, uh, follow the apostles' preaching in the first century. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard Him, God testifying both with signs and wonders and many mighty deeds. God verified the gospel with the outward signs. And that was extremely important and significant at this early, early stage of the launching of the church. This is, this is amazing. God's Son has visited the world. His ministry was relegated to Israel, to the nation of Israel in these boundaries. Now He's risen from the dead. He says to His apostles, Go! Go into all the world! 
And he says, greater works than these shall you do because I go to the Father. And I believe that the Lord did endow the apostles with supernatural miracles and signs and wonders so people like Simon in chapter 8 could say, this is nothing other than the hand of God. Like the, like the magicians said, when they were outmatched, when Moses was able to do things like hit the ground and all of a sudden these gnats, flies are flying all around the place. They said, uh-oh, that's out of bounds for us. These are things that are out of our category. We can't perform them. Such was Simon the sorcerer when he saw the mighty things that were being done by Philip. He thought, this is the real power of God. I want to have what they have. I don't have that. Anyway, there's so much about this subject that I would like to talk about, but because of time, but I just want, I guess the point I'm trying to get across is, let's, let's look for the higher things. And I don't think we have a charismatic movement going on in the body. And I think, and one reason why we would want to squelch it because it would, could become a displacement for this. Emotionalism could override the Word and, and biblical teaching and sound preaching to give us a real foundation that we can get from the Word. And how can I be 100% positive that this person that says, I just got a word from the Lord. Look out! You got a word from the Lord? Can you show it to me in black and white out of the Scriptures? I'll accept that. We're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. Our brother's going to talk about claims of having secret communion with God and having an esoteric wisdom that enables you to be able to communicate to people as if you are an oracle of God's. That can be very dangerous. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for the Word of God that lives and abides forever. And thank You, Lord, for the gift of love that You have endowed each of us with, Lord. And we pray that Sovereign Grace Chapel and everyone associated with us, Lord, that we would have that true spirit of love, that agape love, that we can love one another. And even if we have differences between ourselves, Lord, whether it's regards to political things or theological things or things that are negotiable things, Lord, we pray that we would have a spirit of contrition and love and that we would be manifesting the true fruit of the spirit of love to one another and in our actions in this world that we can magnify your name. And Lord, if someone doesn't know Jesus in this room, may you open their heart, give them an understanding of what Christ has done on Calvary, that they would trust him, believe on him, repent to him, and have faith, Lord, to trust you as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.